But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. Welcome back to the Sects and Murder podcast. Where are we traveling to this episode? We're going Germany, 17th century. Witch hunting reached a peak in the 1620s, and by the 1630s, the number of trials were dropping sharply, and the 1650s saw barely any in the counties. Two imperial cities in the northeastern border in the mid-1660s had a witch scare, the infectious fear spreading. According to the reports, a young man had been trained by his father how to fly and had participated in the witch's sabbaths. The investigation cracked open a witch's nest, and by the end of this mass panic, 214 people were under suspicion. 79 arrested and 37 executed. Tensions here died down, only for another eastern town to flare up, with 14 people there executed. While the fear died down after some considerable force from the law, the pressure to prosecute witches still simmered in the people of the villages. It didn't help that pamphlets exploiting that fear, the nature of hack newspapers not having been changed in over 300 years, spreading sensationalized accounts of these trials. These tendrils of horror reach their way to the town of Langenberg, and this is where our story begins. But first, let's acknowledge sources. Almost exclusively, this information has been taken from Thomas Robichaud's book, The Last Witch of Langenberg. The inciting incident takes place on the afternoon of Shrove Tuesday, 20th of February, 1672, in the little hamlet of Herden, attached to the larger town of Langenberg. The miller's daughter, Eva Kustner, has herself some freshly baked Shrovetide cakes from her mother's kitchen. Her first stop was the nearby house of Hans Barthel Walther. Eva had turned to Walther's wife for comfort during a distressing time when her mother was excessively cursing at her. A little cake would be a nice thanks. Gifting Shrovetide cakes was a usual custom of the time and place, as a general thanks to any help neighbours may have provided recently or throughout the year. It was expected that, upon receiving the cake, the neighbour would take a bite or two before inviting the visitor in or waving them goodbye. Walther's wife thought the cake had fallen in and didn't look all that appetising. Eva asked her to try it three times before giving up and leaving, perhaps feeling a little slighted. The Walthers kept the cake, but didn't eat it, even after Eva left the area. Tearing off a small piece, they tossed it to their dog, who refused to eat it. Now, I have on good authority from the website wearehumanangels.org that dogs can sense evil. 
I mentioned the use of animals in black magic when I discussed Matthew Hopkins. See that episode for more details. The Walthers, ever so kind to their animals, even tried to force the dog to eat the cake, but still it refused to swallow. Contrast this to moments later when their oldest daughter tossed her own shrove-tied cake and the dog happily ate it. To the Walthers, there's something suspicious in the air, or rather, the cakes. Following Eva again, she makes her way to the cottage of Michael and his wife, Anna Fessler. She was met with the sounds of bells and Ave Maria, for it was the cusp of twilight and the household had been observing Shrovetide all afternoon. Michael himself was away, but Anna was home, along with her younger sister, Barbara Trekemuller, and her close friend, Anna Heinklein, who brought Shrovetide cakes herself, as well as a traditional gift of barley. Now, we'll get to the barley in a moment. For now, they open the door to Eva, presenting them with six little cakes. Before Anna Fessler could take one, Eva produced another separate from the others, one that was taller and more yellow, and urged Fessler to eat that one instead. She told her that it was made with butter and therefore much better. Twice she mentioned the cake, quote, wouldn't hurt her. Fessler tore off a small piece and popped it into her mouth. Heinklein notes how Anna seemed drawn to the cake and that it seemed as though she couldn't stop eating it. She noted this because afterwards Anna took a bite of one of Heinklein's cakes and told her that her cake was so much better. Barbara took the leftover of Eva's cake and tossed it to Anna's two cats. Eva returned to the mill, upset that her cakes had been thrown to animals. To the Walthers and the Fessler party, Eva's behaviour was suspicious. It had been close to 200 years since the publication of the Malleus Maleficarum, and with it, 200 years of witch scares. One of which was recent, and in a close-by village, where an elderly woman had been found lacing bread and cakes with poison. She not only killed animals, see the episodes on Matthew Hopkins, but also a number of children. Very irrelevant to the women of Herden, though, was that this old witch received help from her daughter, both being in the employ of the devil. The Fessler household would have been particularly sensitive to the influence of diabolical powers, You see, Anna Fessler was a new mother, having given birth to her second child just a month prior, and she was just out of her laying-in period, where she wasn't expected to work the household. Heinklein and Barbara were around often to help with them, and act as sort of guardians for Anna. As her guardians, it was their responsibility to keep an eye out postpartum for anything health-wise that might awry. Barbara herself was childless, but helped Anna with her first child, and Heinklein had a child a few years before who had tragically drowned in a river not far from the mill. After the birth of her child, Fessler had a bout of considerable pain, so much so at times that she couldn't sit up in bed. She would end up getting better over the 
couple of weeks and didn't really show any signs further of illness, at least not that would worry anyone being a new mother. Leading medical knowledge at the time believed harm would come to a woman through shock. Some German villages at the time were even kind enough to make it illegal for men to beat their wives during pregnancy. How thoughtful of them. More relevant for Anna Fessler was the potential for harm from foods. Her guardians kept a close eye on when, what she ate, when she ate, and how much. Eva, only several months prior, had given birth to a daughter herself. She would have known about the susceptibility to shock for new mothers. In addition to this, gifts never came from the mill without the express permission of the miller's wife, Anna Schmieg. Schmieg was not known for her hospitality. In fact, she was known to have riled up every one of these women at some point. Heinklein had a falling out with her over some cherries a few years ago, and the two had a publicly known grudge against each other ever since. Never once had Schmieg offered her neighbors gifts, except once when Eva was allowed to bring over some pears for Anna Fessler. An hour after the church bells died down, Michael Fessler returned home. He worked in the main town that the hamlet was attached to, Langenberg. In fact, his wife worked over there too. She was well-connected, her two employers there being part of the Langenberg court. He questioned the new Shrove cakes on the table, and when told that they were a gift from the miller's daughter, he commanded them not to touch the cakes again. Whatever instincts drove him to do this turned out to be right. Not long into the evening, around seven at night, Anna Fessler began to pace the room. She wasn't inclined to pacing, which troubled Michael. Troubled further, he was, when an hour or two later, they had retired to bed. Anna, quote, woke up suddenly and sat up and said that she was hurting so badly that she could not stay in bed. She said her body, quote, felt like it would explode. Before long, she was doubled over, dry heaving, as if she were trying to force something up from her throat. Her torso began to swell, and a fever fell upon her. She was asking for water when her bowels loosened, and she passed brick-red blood. Word had reached the Heinkleins by now. Anna ran over to help, and George, her husband, rushed to the Walthers and asked them to get to the Fessler house. Anna Heinklein reports that her friend was in so much pain she couldn't talk, and that George and Michael had to pick Anna up and carry her to bed. Around 11 o'clock, those present recited the Lord's Prayer around Anna. She cried out, O oh God, I must die. O oh Jesus, come to me in your hour. Those were her last words. Foam dribbled from her mouth as, 40 minutes later, Anna Fessler died. George Frederick Assam wasted no time launching a government investigation. As it had been reported to him, it was the work of a poisoner. 
As an administrator, it wasn't unusual for Assam to come across complaints similar to this. He dealt with complaints ranging from slander to violent assaults. And thanks to the Thirty Years' War, the accusations of murder, thievery, even witchery were all too common. Assam followed standard procedure when a complaint such as this came across his desk. First, he had to hear the complaint out. If it sounded like there was a basis for an investigation, he or one of his men would go gather first-hand account of the situation. In this instance, he would go see to it personally. And given the suspicious death, he brought with him the court barber surgeon, Hans Ulbricht Unfug, and the master of the bath, Johann George Waldman. February 21st, the three met with Michael Fessler. While he wasn't present for the suspected ingesting of the poison, as a man, he had a legal standing to bring forth a formal accusation. Most of the information he provided was background quarrels that he and his wife had with the Schmiegs. It would be the testimony of eyewitnesses Barbara and Anna Heinklein that would launch into the courts. Assam recorded everything that they said, taking no sides. While the accusations the neighbors threw at the Schmiegs were heavy, they were careful not to outright accuse them of poisoning or witchcraft. Unfug handed in his medical report the exact same day, and it too took no sides. Unfug was the most qualified man in Langenberg at the time. He had a Latin education, a three-year apprenticeship, journeyman status, and validation by the guild. In addition to being the barber surgeon, he was also an assistant to the physicians when they visited and treated members of the court. Dude had a resume. His report noted straight off the bat that, quote, reporting the actual causes of her death in whatever hopeless and swollen condition she died would be extremely difficult to do. The body was noted to look, quote, quite horrible and looked, quote, like a drum from the stomach down to the thigh and then on the neck and the head. To the left side of the corpse, they discovered a, quote, blue streak running up the right breast. Considering she was reported as healthy, Unfug and Waldman were at their limits of their knowledge. The law only technically required the body to be inspected on the outside, but considering the lack of knowledge and real evidence so far, it was decided to outsource the investigation to a proper physician. Little side note, while surgeons and physicians cross over in many ways, they were two distinct jobs. While surgeons directly corrected illness and injuries, physicians worked more holistically, encouraging changes that allowed the body to heal itself. Now, it can't be discounted how knowledgeable surgeons were. It was physicians at this time that pushed forward the evolution of medical thought. So, off the back of that, Unfug had no formal university training in anatomy, pathology, nor internal medicine. But who did was Dr. Andreas Thim from a nearby city. Thim was asked to carry out the, quote, dissection of a woman who has suddenly died and to consider whether she was given poison. Assam described the health and the history of the deceased and the events 
as he was reported, that led to her death. Dr. Thim was 20 years into his career as a physician, having attended one of the most progressive and prestigious schools at Gotha before continuing his studies in the most progressive and prestigious schools in Germany. He also studied surgery to get better first-hand accounts of injury and illness. Being that he knew the value of first-hand experience, he hastened to his appointment. If he waited any longer, the body would decay more and more. And so he stood over the corpse of Anna Fessler, barber surgeon Unfug working as his hands. Anna's body was noted to be, quote, greatly swollen from the feet right up to the head, and that foam had formed around the mouth. Unfug was directed to make an incision down the torso to expose the ribcage and internal organs. He continued down and opened up the abdomen. All of the intestines and gastric surroundings were torn to shreds, quote, as if someone had forcibly ripped them apart. And that the intestines themselves were blown up, quote, as if someone had exploded them with great violence. The color was off too, a bluish yellow with yellow liquid filling the cavity. The liver did look a healthy color, but was much too enlarged. Her stomach, at the point near the spleen, had a large black mass of half a hand thick. Inside the stomach were the undigested pieces of cake. The lower intestines seemed to have the same foam that was around Anna Fessler's mouth. Continuing their autopsy, Unfug opened around the neck, and it was noted that a large quantity of blood flowed out. Quote, in the heart there were otherwise no signs except the usual amount of blood was on hand. He couldn't, or at least didn't write about, corrupted blood that was a usual sign of poisoning, though the heart and lungs were pressed together abnormally. One of the leading theories of the time suggested that, much like natural sources of poison like insect stings, that people's bodies could create toxins which would build up over time if not treated regularly. This all branches from the humor theory, which we'll, have a, we'll touch on a little bit later. Thyme concluded that Anna Fessler had indeed been poisoned, but he refused to speculate on the origin of the poison. It could have been a buildup of toxins during pregnancy, or it could have been introduced externally. Assam bound this report along with his others and sent it through to the Langenberg court. He presented straight facts with no opinions. He added a suggestion at the urgency of the matter. Nine AM the following morning, the twenty second of February. The reports are given to Dr. Tobias Ulrich von Golchen, Chief Counselor to Count Heinrich Friedrich of Langenberg. I could go on about his credentials, but I won't. He was well respected as a judge due to his privileged upbringing with the finest of universities and having twenty years of experience on him. 
One thing that you will see flavor his judgment, however, is like many of the area at the time, he was deeply religious. Being brought up a Lutheran, he saw the law as a natural extension of the morals that were taught in the Bible. And so a lack of the law was a lack in God, and a lack in God undermined the law. Assam's report and the autopsy present suspicious signs of poisoning, but mention nothing, nothing about witchcraft. That was all left to the third document. Separate to the other two reports, he was delivered by court preacher Ludwig Casimir Dietzel, who had written to by the Lutheran pastor of the hamlet next to Herden, Johann David Weidel. In this letter, we find the first mention of witchcraft, where the pastor suggests that not only did she ingest poison, that it came from the Shrove cake. He also commented on how quickly she had died, and pressed the authorities to act to root out this evil quickly. Now, we will see it come to fruition later, but von Gulchen had a bit of a hard-on for witchcraft. In this instance, however, he was prepared to act as rationally as the court required. Unlike Matthew Hopkins, a flimsy rumour wasn't anything to move on. This case would be subjected to the normal rules of evidence. He did declare that no physician had legal standing to make the final ruling, appointing himself as the legal power to determine the outcome. In his notes regarding the case, he wrote, quote, I certainly want to believe or take the position, that because of so many different immediate signs of poisoning from both external and internal sources present themselves after autopsy, that in light of this and the great swiftness of death, the alleged cake must have been poisoned, and certainly the poison that was present was either quite lethal or otherwise given in a great quantity, that the lying-in woman died from it. He would go on to note the ambiguous nature of the evidence that if the toxins had been from the woman's own body, he hadn't a crime to investigate. Von Gulchen ordered his officials to begin a general inquisition to, to determine just so. In order to interrogate the suspects, orders went out for the arrest of Eva Kustner and her mother, Anna Schmieg. On the morning of February 27th, the interrogations began. He had a list of questions for each witness, a standardized set of answers to compare and proceed to build a timeline. He worked from outwards in, starting with witnesses who had second-hand accounts of that night, right through to the accused themselves. This accounted for everyone who lived in Herden, as well as a fair amount of neighboring hamlets, before beginning, von Gulchen prayed for strength and wisdom, quote, what through God the law might proceed and the truth brought out into light so that evil might be eradicated. Unfug and Michael Bauer were the first interrogated, being employers of Anna Fessler. They reported her health the weeks prior and Unfug told of a rumour he'd heard about Michael Fessler's cattle being poisoned by Anna Schmieg. So let's talk to Michael Fessler about that. 
He presented a history of friction between the Schmiegs and the Fesslers that had smoldered over the years. Von Gulchen grilled the man in an effort to determine if it was bitterness from past ghosts that caused a false accusation in this case. Michael denied ill-feeling from their side. The problem was all with the accused. Last summer, Anna Schmieg had cursed their pasture where his cows were grazing, or so he believed. Normally, one would bring this matter to the court to be seen about, but the courts had actually suspended complaints over 1670 and 1671. Moving on to Barbara Trockemuller and her mother Amelia, and Anna Heinklein, eyewitnesses, all these women agreed on the story, save some minor trivia from weeks prior. Barbara and Anna recounted how Eva brought the cakes into the house, being sure to give Anna Fessler the most golden one. They would expand on their stories, providing more and more details. They were all careful not to denounce Anna Schmieg directly. Von Gulchen notes that these women were fearful, and that there was already a reputation of her being involved with witchcraft. Anna Heinklein had more first-hand experience with the woman. The court record says, quote, She has been afraid of her. A child of hers drowned, and this made her feel extremely anxious about whether there was a gruesome monster in her house. The loss made her sleep a lot and made her sad. A while ago, she went into the barn and she saw a gross and repulsively large toad. And since she was pregnant at the time, it shocked her in her heart. She swore she never went to the mill and had no relations with the Miller family. She tells about several years ago when she asked Anna Schmieg for some cherries and was cursed at. She also told the court that Anna drank heavily, which was a bit of a worry since the very same rumours surrounded Turk Anna, notorious witch from just four years prior. Michael Fessler was brought back in at two in the afternoon to expand on his story about Anna Schmieg's attack on his cattle. He wasn't actually in town at the time of the supposed cursing. His wife's brother had told him that a calf had suddenly fallen over in the meadow and Langenberg's executioner, Master Endress Fux, said that it had turned completely black. The court talked to Philip Kustner, Eva's husband. He insisted that Eva only operated on her mother's orders, and that she was greatly saddened when she heard of Anna's death. After all, they were friendly. Hans Balthel Walther's daughters provided more information about the cow's death. One saying that the miller's wife had thrown out a terrible curse, saying she wished that poison were in the meadow so that the cows would die of it, and that the devil would take the cows all away. The other daughter confirmed the story, adding that she had heard the miller's daughter wishing she could call down thunder and hail to blast the cows, that, quote, they should all eat death, poison, and plague. Suspicion was originally with both Anna Schmieg and her daughter Eva Kustner, but with these testimonies, it seems as though it were all Anna. 
Code of conduct assumed that daughters did their mother's bidding, and if that were the case, then she could prove to be the most important eyewitness they had. It was the morning of 29th of February when Eva was brought before the court. Her testimony recorded, quote, My mother ordered me to take a number of little cakes, five or six, and to bring them to Fessler. When I went in, Anna Fessler was sitting on the big mixing bench. I gave one to her and set the others on the table. I ate none of the cakes from my mother myself. We chatted with each other. I neither baked the little cakes myself or helped to bake them. Whether my mother did something wrong, I do not know. My mother might be a witch or she might not be. I cannot swear an oath on it. The court advisor quizzed her on her mother's swearing and drinking habits. Eva turned defensive, omitting some indiscretions, but also distancing herself from her mother. Quote, No one can say that she curses like her mother, except sometimes she swore a little. She's never been involved in immoral sexual behavior except with her husband before they promised each other a marriage. She had never in her life gotten completely drunk. She said that at times her mother stayed home all day and got drunk, and when she drank, she cursed awfully. And sometimes she heard her mother muttering under her breath, though she hadn't heard her do so in the week leading up to the Shrove Cakes incident. She knew nothing of her mother's supposed curses on the Fessler's cows, nor having any bad blood between them. Now, there was rumours about both Eva and Anna separately at points wishing to commit suicide. This, according to the Lutheran judge, was a clear sign of a guilty conscience. She did admit to having stood near the Jacks River, thinking that it wouldn't be a real loss if she were to jump in. She then prayed, asking God for forgiveness. Okay, let's roll back to the cakes. Eva denied knowingly giving Fessler a poisoned cake, and proved quite evasive with other questions. Maybe my mother put something in the cakes. Maybe it was an extra butter that went into it. Maybe it was suspicious to go around twilight. Maybe there was a different batch. She denied outright that her mother told her to tell Anna to eat the cake. Von Gulchen then threatened her with torture if she didn't tell them the truth. And what came out of that was a more honest relationship between her and her mother. It seemed they were at odds that Anna and Eva were themselves at odds. At the end of the day, there was a lot of information for the court to go through. None of it, however, proved that the mother or daughter conspired to murder Anna Fessler with a poisoned cake, and neither were there solid evidence of witchcraft. Was there anything immediately after that could point to guilt? The day after Anna's death, Eva cried all morning before grabbing another cake from her mother's kitchen to gift it to the young Fessler boy who would be sad from his mother's death. Doesn't sound suspicious. What about Anna Schmieg's attempted suicide? A woman named Apollonia 
the closest thing to a friend that Anna Schmieg had in Herden, in the court on 28th of February reports, quote, the day next evening, the day after Fessler's death, the miller's wife was completely alone in her house and sent a boy over to her, asking that she, Apollonia, come to see her. When she went there, the miller's wife came down from the mill to meet her. She said she is suffering under a terrible cross. Out there, she's been called a witch 20 times. Everyone is saying she is a witch. She carried a rope in her hand and wanted to hang herself. She, Apollonia, led her up the steps into the mill's sitting room and she sat down on the spindle and the kneading trough. Apollonia then took the spindle away from her and took it home and left it there. She talked to her and said she shouldn't hang herself, pleading with her, and saw that she had a clean conscience. At this, Anna Schmieg quieted down and once again became happy. She explained that she had ordered Eva to bring Anna Fessler only three little cakes, but her daughter had taken more than that from the basket and that she had chastised her and said, you fool, don't take them all. At the time, the miller's wife was also drunk. She wailed and complained and said her son was about to get married and now everything was going to pieces. She acted as if she would still hang herself unless someone helped her out of it. She wanted to take the rope out of the barn, into the stable, because there's always straw there, and she didn't want to hang herself in the house, that she had already chosen a little corner to do it. Now in this, we learn that pretty much her entire family's future was unraveling with these accusations. As she was led away by Langenberg officers, her husband, Hans, told her that if they want to take her life, they would take it. Anna Schmieg replied to Hans, Good night, you will never see me again in this life. Von Gulchen confronted her over these statements. Anna Schmieg denied having said them. Let's look at her testimony. With this particular case, there was little in the way of physical evidence, in that there was no murder weapon like a knife, nor were there eyewitnesses to the poisoning. The only thing that could really be sure to stick for the conviction was a full confession. And since von Gulchen was certain that she was a witch, this aim was to bring to light Anna's real crime, her pact with the devil. This is the reason on March 7th, he brought with him court pastor Ludwig Casimir Dietzel, to listen in and advise von Gulchen privately. He opened with a comforting thought. If she were totally honest, then she could move freely to the mercy of the court and God. If she wasn't honest, then he would have no choice but to question her under torture. This would be the only chance Anna was given to talk freely about the events of that day. And may God punish her body and soul if she has done something wrong, but she only baked one type of cake, and her cakes had never hurt anyone before. Von Gulchen believed she sounded nervous. He was unconvinced. She was questioned about her religious upbringing, perhaps in an effort to learn of some wayward event in her childhood that led her into the devil's arms. 
She denied renouncing her baptismal vows, but couldn't deny swearing, drinking, and hoping that Fessler's cows had died after they wandered into her pasture. She insisted, though, that she had no envy or revenge in her heart, that she didn't want to kill anyone. And if she did poison the pastures in an effort to kill the cows, she would have killed her cows as well. He questioned why she hadn't confronted Fessler when he began spreading these rumours, never mind the fact that he had previously noted the courts being closed for complaints at the time. When the subject of witchcraft came up, Anna furiously denied being involved in any of it. If it were true, then she should be burned alive, she told him. Regarding her cussing, calling on the devil to take her, she expressed forgiveness from God for swearing, excusing it as raw impropriety. She was confronted with the reports that she hadn't said her nightly prayers for two years, but this wasn't an issue for most other people in the area. Most people during this time only really prayed when something went wrong, or it was one of the several times of the year where they went to public mass and it required prayers. Eva's testimony was presented to her, and this really struck a nerve. She told von Gulchen that if she were a witch, then Eva was one too, as Eva would have learnt it from her. There's no note of tone, but it's very easy to read these passages as bitter sarcasm. Anna dismissed Eva, saying that she quarrelled with her father constantly throughout the winter. Von Gulchen was ever so pressing about witchcraft and repeatedly questioned Anna about it. Anna's responses all fell on the same theme. If I am a witch, then may God condemn my soul. And as you can expect, this was a very dangerous thing to say around someone so fundamental as Von Gulchen. Yes, God would condemn her soul. Moving back to the cakes, Anna said she baked the cakes as per normal. Eva didn't help, so she knew exactly what was in them, and it wasn't poison. Everything was baked at the same time. There couldn't have been one that was more golden, or some that were not poison, and some that were. Eva was ordered by Anna to go around to the Fessler household. True. But Anna told Eva to give the cakes to Michael, as Anna Fessler was still in her lying-in period. She denied ill will towards the family, even Michael despite the cow problem. Though she certainly wasn't one to give gifts, only one other instance when she sent soup the previous November. Anna handed the cakes to Eva herself, but they were all in the basket, and there weren't any additional ones that Eva could have placed into her pockets, as reported by Anna Fessler's sister. In a final effort to draw a confession, Von Gulchen bluntly accused her of poisoning Anna Fessler and using her daughter as a messenger of death. Anna Schmieg's response, quote, As God is my witness, if I have ever seen poison in my life, then I should be struck dead. She was returned to her cell. 2.30 the following afternoon, she was dragged out again before the court. The court asked, quote, Was it not certain because Anna Fessler went back into her house sick from the cake, 
complaining loudly that her body felt like it would explode and died three hours later that she had died from eating the cakes. The response, quote, Anna may have died from this little cake. I do not know. God help me. If no one else ate from it, then I have to believe that that is certain. The court asked, quote, Did she not give herself to the evil spirit about 14 days earlier, that she would get revenge with a cake on Anna since she is an enemy? Response, quote, I have nothing to do with the evil spirit. I also do not omit to the muttering. I do not know anything. You should let Master Errold come over to me, and you will not find anything on me. Could she really be guilty if she was so certain in her innocence that she would willingly call the executioner to examine her? Further questioning had her deflecting blame to her daughter. Never did she say outright that Eva was responsible for the poisoning, but she certainly insinuated it. She was sent back to her cell, Mongolchen still no closer to his evidence. He needed to delve into her past in the hopes of unlocking this witching secret. Anna's early life was rife with loss. Born into a poor community sometime in the early 1610s, where she lived until the death of her father, 1620. Her brother soon left home, and her mother got married to a teacher in a town some 30 clicks a few years later. He joined the local Lord's Army, and his fate was never recorded. Her mother died only a couple of years after moving. Her stepfather sent her to work as a domestic servant for Hans Hafner, a tavern keeper not too far from Langenberg. Now, in this, she was quite lucky. The towns nestled around were considerably richer, being a popular enough trade route to bring plenty of merchants through, but away enough from soldiers' eyes to avoid roving gangs that plundered for their armies. The tavern itself was one of the most visited in the area, and Hafner had family connections all along the river. He was also a bit of a rebel, having organized several successful protests that ensured protection and justice from the local authorities, preventing war taxes and troop quarterings from ruining the townspeople. Anna spent most of her teenage years under the employ of Hafner. And it was through him that Anna eventually met her husband, Hans Schmieg. They married in 1636 or 37, when Anna was 25 or 26. Hans's family, related to the Hafner family, owned a mill downriver. And as luck would have it, in 1636, the Lord's Miller and son gave up their lease at the mill at Blackgen. Anna and Hans now had a mill for themselves. There's no records of any conflicts that Anna might have had with her neighbours at this time which is noteworthy because peasants regularly appealed before the courts around this time with all sorts of grievances, small and large, real or imaginary. Even more so when you consider the position of the Schmiegs held as millers. 
He was baked into the villagers' minds to be distrustful of millers, suspecting them of stealing grain or price gouging. In Hans and Anna's case, the Lord Miller title meant that they were low-level government officials, an easy target for anyone with problems with the government itself. Anna and Hans had kids, but this part of her life was also marred with sadness. Between 1638 and 1652, Anna had seven boys and two girls. Seven of these children died at young ages. Michael, six years old, in 1643. Hans, Martin, and Eva, five and a half and two months old, in 1645. George, four years old, one year later. Hans, Martin, a different one. One and a half years in 1648. Johan, almost two years old in 1649. And another Johan, this one three months old in 1650. Only her second Michael, born 1644, and her second Eva, born 1652, survived into adulthood. Granted, infant mortality rate at the time was quite high, but two of these deaths attracted public attention. Hans Martin, the younger, and George. Both met with accidents with milling machines and drowned as a result. Now, it's not too difficult to see how this could have happened. They lived at the mill. The machinery was loud enough that a child screaming might not be heard by parents busy in other areas of the mill. But that's not what locals thought. Gossip swirled around that Schmieg's Rumours of malicious forces at work, even going so far as to say that Anna herself had killed them. Hans asked the Count to help with these stories, and the Count did his best at suppressing them. That isn't to say that Hans was squeaky clean. Indeed, there is some merit in the distrust for Millers. Between 1647 and 1650, German Protestant mercenaries, French soldiers, and Swedish troops occupied the districts along the river. Many peasants fled their homes, with no money to their names. First year they were there, harvests failed, and the price of grain and bread shot up. The townspeople were up in arms, particularly at the millers, tavern keepers, bakers, and butchers. The government stepped in and levied harsh fines. And who should they name and shame but Hans Schmieg for hoarding food and selling it out of the territory, a slight at the best of times. Then in 1649, he got into a scuffle with the Count. The Count. The Count forgave him, but the villagers socially ostracized him. How Anna reacted to this sets the later stage for the latter part of her life. She became involved in a list of quarrels with her neighbours, ranging from verbal taunts to full-blown brawls. When the Count forgave Hans, they decided it was the perfect time to give up the lease on the Lord's Mill and get one of their own. It was in need of some drastic repairs, but they were freeholders, that is, property owners, and they bought a second smallholding farm. This mill and small holding were located in Herden. The mill had three wheels, though two would need to be replaced, 
along with the shafts that drove said wheels. New troughs were needed, though it would come well equipped with iron rods, rings, mallets, chisels and storage bins. In the two summer gardens by the barn, Anna would plant vegetables and herbs, pretty standard for a home such. And almost immediately the rumours began. The main story was that Hans put together the money to buy the mill by stealing money over the years as the Lord's Mill. And Anna's now habit of popping off at any moment didn't really help. The court records, quote, Fine for the woman Miller of Herden, who was drinking wine in Hans Ebert's house, who slandered and punished Claus Wyatt, as it was said that her husband had stolen so much at the Lord's Mill that he could buy the mill with it, and then threw a goat's head in his face. The Honourable Judge, however, finds Wyatt because he insulted her by calling her a tall, witchy whore. Though Anna would be fined for this event also. The same year she got into a dispute over a goose, but she would make up with her neighbour when they called on the pastor. The pastor notes the ill feelings between the two parties dissolved over the sacrament of Holy Communion. And it's interesting that this happened because most villagers in this time and place rarely confessed to their sins, usually four times a year when it was more communal. And they're more general, we all sin all the time, let's acknowledge that kind of way. Whether or not she had an actual change of heart and actively decided to work with her neighbours, she was back before the court of discipline in 1656, standing opposite Hans Wolhofer. There was an indecent exchange, says the court, quote, drinking together, trading insulting words in a completely drunken stupor. She called him a wild sow. Then he called her a duck. Then she insulted him by calling him a black cowardly dog. It also notes that Anna had been called out by Wolfhofer's wife for getting drunk and screaming at her. Four years later, she was punching above her weight, taking on Johann Conrad Hohenbach, the Langenberg steward. Hohenbach had fined Hans a considerable amount at Pentecost 1658 for illegally selling a cow. Hohenbach originally deferred collecting the fine until autumn, at which point he assessed the fine against Schmieg's wine harvest, and Anna absolutely went off. According to him, she later, tra- <laughs> she later traveled villages absolutely sloshed and made a nuisance of herself, hurling strings of abusive words at the steward. He didn't really want to go there again to collect if he could help it. And he could. So he sent a messenger, to which Anna told the messenger, quote, The new wine should be left alone. You'll have to take what is mine by force. Now, Hohenbach actually had full right to punish Anna for such actions, but he didn't. He went to the Count instead and kind of palmed it off to him. The Count decided not to punish Anna, just telling her that if something like this happened again, she would fine the family heavily. Anna was 47 years old at this point, and her reputation was pretty well set.
More court appearances. Once accused of stealing leather, denied with the explanation that she paid for one but accidentally had two in her hand. She was deeply sorry over the hastily thrown insults when the tanner initially called her out. Her fine was reduced after appealing to the Count, and he once again suggested she refrain from cursing and committing herself to an honourable Christian lifestyle. It's easy to see in her life how she could be seen as a stereotypical, aggressive old woman beyond childbearing years that fit the particular popular image of witches at the time. Thing is, all these actions and responses seem to also have been built into her as a means to survive, advance, and build her life from what could be considered very little. With her arrest, the defense mechanisms could be seen in an entirely new light. Outside of prison, Hans, who was over 60 years old at this point, found it quite difficult to keep up the house and the mill from the day to day with his wife and daughter in prison. He wrote a letter to the Count in a petition that they release at least Eva so that she could run the day-to-day -day business around the home. The request was denied. He rallied the extended family to sign a petition. This too was denied. But running the mill was the least of Hans' problems at this point. Stories of sorcery started to surface. Now this might not be entirely connected to Anna as historically Mills were associated with magic, sorcery, and dark supernatural powers. A common saying at the time translated to, uncanny things happen at the mill. Now, due to the loud nature of the machinery at the mills, it was believed that demons went about their activities there, free to be as loud as they wished. Evidence of demonic activity are the large concentrations of death that happen to occur near mills. The previous year, Good Friday, Fox was walking back from Langenberg with his pooch, Malka. They stopped to rest near a pond near the mill when the dog took off chasing the cat. Hans appeared and said that if the cat were a black one, then he would have good use for it if they caught it. It's a little more deep than a stereotypical cat-witch connection. It was common knowledge at the time that one could take a black cat's head and bury it under a house door, charming the home and protecting it from evil spirits. It was an old folk custom that melded with Christian ideology, invoking God's protection from the devil in the burying of the cat. Fox said that Hans asked him two more times throughout the week if he had any more black cats. In addition to the cats, the butcher's son had reportedly sold Hans a mandrake. Reportedly because the boy died soon after and couldn't actually testify to the fact. As we see in movies such as Pan's Labyrinth, a mandrake was usually placed hidden somewhere underneath as a protection, often helping pregnant women in childbirth. But protective charms could often be used for harm as well. In a session in mid-August, Hans admitted to keeping a mandrake about the span of a hand in the box in the barn. He kept it there for three weeks with no noticeable change in fortune, good or bad, until Eva found it. She was a little frightened of it, uh, it does look kind of weird and gross looking, and gave it to Anna, who tossed it out the window and into the river. 
interesting thing is, folk mag magic was pretty well tolerated at this point. Sure, the church might have condemned it, but as far as the secular courts go, it wouldn't have been that egregious. Spells and charms that heal and protect white magic, as it was known, was common and practiced by most people. Spells and charms to harm black magic was downright evil and only possible if one drew from a diabolical power, the devil. Now, that isn't to say that magic was 100% out there, let's do it, everyone's all cool with it. It was still codified that protective magic was to be disciplined and that the black arts were to be heavily fined. As I mentioned in Matthew Hopkins' episodes, the call for legal action usually began at the harming and death of cattle or people. The recent Thirty Years' War disrupted how these magic cases were managed too. Without the administrative manpower to investigate all cases, churches, for it usually was the church that would hear about it first, sometimes wouldn't even bother involving the authorities with the reports of witchcraft. A pastor in 1648 heard of a woman practicing sorcery, and he just told her not to do it again. Same in 1654, where it was a more malicious spell, cast to make a patron of a tavern sick. Again, the pastor just told her to cut it out. Back to Hans. He could certainly have needed the cats for any number of spells. The cat head charm, as mentioned, the fat for frostbite, the blood for epilepsy, and the liver cured gallstones. The skin for toothaches, or even less magical, he could have just wanted a cat for the mill to keep the mice and rats out of the grain stores. Fox admitted that he didn't know what Hans would actually do with the cat once he got one, and never heard of him talk of the devil. Hans would have a lot of knowledge surrounding the machinery at the mill. He had lived and breathed mills his entire life. He was certain that it wasn't a failure on the part of the parts, but rather an evil spirit of some sort. The court wasn't convinced. Fox was called back in for further questioning, where he explained, saying that Hans had threatened him. Hans would break under the questioning of the court, crying for forgiveness for the thought of wanting to use white magic, but he never entertained the thought of black magic. The court let him go. His actions were seen as reckless, but by no means criminal. Master Fox, let's take a moment to speak about him. In a twist of irony, he commanded respect when speaking of magical practices because of his position as the executioner, being associated with folk healing. His particular brand of white magic relied on what was left over when he was sent to clean animal deaths, suicides, and the aftermath of executions. If he didn't outright make charms, he could sell collections to apothecaries. Human blood, bones and hair, and body parts could all be used in some of the most powerful healing medicines. 
and he was shown to have quite an eye for seeking out the black arts. It was his testimony that Barbara Reinhardt, accused of witchcraft in 1668, was arrested. On October 24th, she was brought before von Golchen and asked why she had done it. And she said she had no idea what she had done. Von Golchen insisted that Reinhardt confessed to her secret identity. Her accuser, Turk Anna, was brought in to tell of her dead cattle, naming an additional conspirator, Barbara Schleicher. Rumors intensified, and more stories of Reinhardt came to light. Her granddaughter told of an evil spirit, sometimes appearing as a handsomely dressed man, who would visit the Reinhardt home. How a, quote, black man would whisk her away into the night, to an unknown house outside of the village. She was scolded by the adults around her to mind her own business. On more than one occasion, she said she saw her grandmother eating bread and drinking wine with a mysterious visitor. The man, she says, was teaching her grandmother something, a hateful word. It was on the strength of these testimonies, and that of Fox, that Reinhardt was to be interrogated until she revealed her sinister actions. January 5th, 1669, she broke under torture. She told of how she met the devil, how he was a handsome young man, and he had come to her in the fields, showing his desire for her and giving her money. Reinhardt refused to admit her demon lover and have herself marked on her body, but upon Fox removing fabric from her shoulder, it was shown to the court that she was indeed marked. She admitted to 94 crimes that occurred over the course of 30 years, which is only like three a year, which, I mean, that's rookie numbers, really, if you think about it. While she denied having killed anyone, the injuries she confessed to giving by way of witches' shots and deaths of cattle were more than enough for the court to seek her death. Master Fox's involvement wasn't the only thing that interconnects this case with Anna Schmiegs, for on March 6th, after another bout of interrogation, Reinhardt confessed to poisoning some eggs that she gave to the wife of the Langenberg Chamber Secretary poison. Furthermore, she said it was her that gave the powder that killed livestock to Schleiger. So in March 1669, Schleiger was questioned. A mercy for her that von Golchen believed she was simply feeble-minded. March was also when Reinhardt's confession was read aloud to the court. Twelve separate crimes, including murders, poisoning, immorality, general godliness, and the teaching of of witchcraft. With that, Reinhardt was publicly executed on Gallows Hill on January 30th, 1669. As Anna Schmieg rotted away in prison, the rumors of Schleier's witchiness kicked up, and von Golchen listened intently to these rumors. In May 1672, he questioned her again uncovering stories of poisonings and cattle death that were reminiscent of Reinhardt of the past and Schmieg of the present. These connections were noted in two lengthy documents that he wrote up to Count Friedrich. Friedrich approved the use of torture for the next round of interrogation with Schlager, 
and suggested that Schmieg be witness to said torture in an effort to loosen her tongue before she herself was subjected to such. Dietzel was present at Anna Schmieg's next interrogation, intended to ferret out the spiritual and religious root of her sins. The court pastor didn't take his job lightly. It was his understanding that witchcraft wasn't something locals just needed some simple guidance with. No, witchcraft to him was a perversion of the very soul gifted to them by God. And if his involvement with Reinhardt and Schleiger's case were anything to go by, this interrogation of Anna Schmieg could turn violent. His method was to shock the truth out of someone, fearless of the wrath that might befall him, for he had the protection of God on his side. Anna was asked for the first time to give an account of all her sins. Now, as I mentioned before, it was rare for someone of this time and place to sort of keep a catalogue of their sins, and confession was a private affair that confessed the general sinfulness of being, as opposed to specifically X amount accounts of whatever sin. Nothing in Anna's experience had prepared her for the probing questions that she faced. She had absolutely no idea how to answer von Golchen's questions, and she had no idea how he would take every word she said in detail, read them back to her, allowing for no vagueness. Any and every contradiction was faced, and every motive would be questioned. And that is where we will end this episode. Next episode, we will open up with Anna's turning on Eva, the beginning of the downfall of both of them and culminating to what is the final ruling of Anna Schmieg in this witch trial. Thank you for listening. <laughs>